Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Bob Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations. So here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. How is it that Phil Gang and I never met one another? His was a name revered in holistic education circles for his pioneering work in the Global Alliance for Transforming Education. We knew many of the same people in other fields of consciousness exploration as well. Yet it was only at the Alternative Education and Resource Conference in 2016 that we met. Happily, we've become friends and neighbors and spend as much time talking about consciousness as we do about education. As our conversations evolve, we seem to agree that they are so intertwined as to be inextricable. Philip Snow Gang is founder and director of the Institute for Educational Studies, TIES. In conjunction with Endicott College, TIES offers two master's degrees, Integrative Learning and the Montessori Integrative Learning. He's been active in holistic education for 45 years. In 2000, he founded the Global Alliance for Transforming Education and was a principal in its seminal document Education 2000 a holistic perspective He's recently released a documentary to educate ecosapiens which explores his vision for teaching and learning You know if I look back on my life's contributions it it's um a result of me wanting to create an education that it was contextual so that people would treat the planet more peacefully and be more peaceful with themselves so in order to do that they had to get the largest possible context which is cosmology and ecology so so then the essence of the way you've approached education is through creating this this cosmological context and then trying to bring that down to how we can bring that forward in education is that a fair way to say that that's yeah, a good way and the first consequence which is easy to understand because it's closer to us is the ecological situation and then you can have a sense of wonder about how the planet works and say well how did this happen and it it's a derivative of the cosmos unfolding I see so for you then ecology and I guess nature well ordinary I mean the nature that we experience through our five senses um and the intuitions we come from that are the kind of the what would be the word the uh, clue or the place uh in which a keystone in which we can engage um a deeper understanding of self and world yeah so isn't is that's really the place for children to be intimate with the natural environment um and it's really hard with so many most of the population living in cities well not to be a bit of a devil's advocate i lived 17 years in the sierra mountains and i didn't see those children having that deep of an understanding uh that you're indicating here where they were really fundamentally con- connected to nature in fact they yearned for cities and that sort of thing 
and um, and yet their parents are are and were some of our um, well-known ecologists and environmentalists. <laughs> so I don't know what the form of their education took, or what um, whether they were brought out into that world and explored it in a way that allowed them to be self-reflective. So then your work in education is to not only the connection or the physicality of being in the natural world, but also um, an educational approach and pedagogy that allows them to, what, understand, participate? Even in a garden, you know, even in a school garden. Well, how did all of this happen? Let's look at this flower, you know, take in the flowerness of it, not just the plant biology, which is what we're up to in in traditional formal education, but the essence of flower. I mean, what does it mean? Flowers having them. If it weren't for flowers, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you bring forward that essence in a child? that essential understanding because as I said the environmentalists that I lived with for those years did resolve to biology well, you know soil composition and it did not work well my my background is Montessori so I've been doing that since 1973 and there are ways that Montessori there are Montessori ways that she really um, came to understand when she lived in India for seven years during the war about the child's relationship to the environment. So before that, it was more physical biology. But during in India, she would go out into the garden with the children and just go into relationship with them, noticing, what do you notice? What do you see? It's a, It's a... How did this come about? Would you like to hear the story of how this came about? So it's it's story and it's witnessing the magic in a garden. Well, most of us are aware of Montessori through the teaching tools and that sort of thing. And most of the education, I don't have extensive, but I have some experience with the with some Montessori education on the West Coast in America. And it is it does seem to be more concerned with the teaching tools and the teacher's guide and that sort of thing, and not so concerned with this um, relationship approach that you're indicating. I'm sure it's that way because this is like third generation, and uh, it's become in many ways formalized and like any system it people in succeeding generations lose a bit of that inspiration i was fortunate to know maria montessori's son mario and her grandson mario junior and um i worked with somebody in new zealand that was a course assistant to maria montessori before and after the war and those relationships were feel the true spiritual nature that seems to be co-opted, not in all Montessori schools, but in many by the same forces that co-opt traditional education, parents wanting 
class level skills, seeing progress, grades, testing. It isn't that way so much outside the United States. Uh, My experience in New Zealand was quite different. The school that Marsha founded, Ripple Montessori, and then changed to Nova Montessori, is quite different. In that school and within the New Zealand government, your um, certification comes if you're meeting parents' expectations and there's no testing uh, countrywide. So the essence of the relationship part of what you're bringing forward is that the educator is genuinely interested in allowing the students to come forward with their perceptions, their understandings, and so on, and then helping them contextualize it into the natural environment. Yeah, that's, I think you've got it right there. It gives them a way to organize not only, you know, the way we, we traditionally organize subjects, but spiritually. And, and that takes, as you well know, a incredible teacher preparation. Because it's that's the problem with most teacher preparation. They're teaching, they're not teaching the teachers in a way that's congruent with what they want the teachers to do with children. Right. I couldn't agree more. The leverage point for changing education, and we all there's the litany of problems with it, but the leverage point is in teacher education. There's no question about that. So now you are involved in that. How is that? Tell us about that. Well, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, we, um, so I was a bit disillusioned with the Montessori world in the late 80s and walked away and um, began working globally. So I was in contact with Ron Miller, who was just about to publish the Holistic Education Review. And um, I wrote one of the articles in that first issue. And then we started talking and I said, let's get an, a meeting together of all the different holistic organizations and see if we can create a common vision. Well, that actually happened in 89 and then again in 90. And the outgrowth of that was a statement that we made called um, Education 2000, A Holistic Perspective, which elicited 10 principles. And I was um, the executive director and got an opportunity to present these ideas in the United States and around the world. And people would say to me, how do I get an education like that? Where? And that's what led to the creation of the Endicott Ties, Masters of Education in Integrative Learning and Montessori Integrative Learning. So we've been doing it for 22 years, and, um, you know, you could, it's hard for me to sit here and talk about its success. But I, I wish everyone could see you right now, because <laughs> I could, I could palpably and viscerally feel in the welling up of joy and, and just tremendous, uh, care and love and, and I don't know, satisfaction or meaning, yeah. I guess, that you find in all this. Yeah. So. It's, it's also stunning, not just the outcomes and 
contact with graduates from 20 years ago, 22 years ago, it's the fact that this was done in a rather radical format. In 1996, no one was really doing online programs, let alone ones that were focused on building a learning community. So we never used academic software. We designed our own, which helped build learning community. So it's not only, yeah, it's practicing the principles of what you want to do in the classroom. I want to return to the something you said um, when we were talking about nature and the garden and flowerness. You said something about, and this actually part, is somehow participatory for the child in their spiritual uh, sense of self. Can you elaborate on that at all? What, what do we mean by that? And I'm not looking to here to confine us to some words or as if anyone could define spirit. But what, 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 what can you tell us about that? I can only speak for myself, you know. Well, you're the other one who's here, so that's fine. <laughs> but I mean, not, not in, I have observed children and there's certain kind of quietness and, and inner reflection that happens when they've been gardening. It just, it just happens. After gardening, there's there's excitement about it, but there's also this inner understanding. Going to myself, uh, when I'm in the forest or by the seaside, I can actually let go of all the stuff that we carry with us throughout the day and be more present and just aware. It's a... And just noticing this, this, the beauty of it and the intimacy of the relationships. And for me, that's a spiritual experience. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them. And I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This story is called Changing Our Vision. There was a very wealthy man who was bothered by severe eye pain. He consulted many physicians and was being treated by several. He did not stop consulting a galaxy of medical experts. He consumed heavy loads of drugs and underwent hundreds of injections. But the ache in his eyes persisted with more vigor than ever before. At last, a monk, who was supposed to be an expert in teaching such patients, was called for by the suffering man. The monk understood his problem and said that, For some time, he should concentrate only on green colors and not to let his eye fall on any other colors. It was a strange prescription, but he was desperate and decided to try it. The millionaire got together a group of painters and purchased barrels of green paint and directed that every object his eye was likely to fall upon be painted green, just as the monk had directed. When the monk came to visit him after a few days, the millionaire's servants ran with buckets of green paint and poured it on him, since he was in a red dress, lest their master see any other color and his eye ache 
would come back. Hearing this, the monk laughed and said, If only you had purchased a pair of green spectacles worth just a few dollars, you could have saved these walls and trees and pots and all the other articles, and also could have saved a huge share of your fortune. You cannot paint the world green. Can you find meanings in this story about education? If so, send your insights to Ba at lovemoreconsulting.com. A three-person panel will select the most relevant stories, and they will be read at the end of a subsequent podcast. Again, that's BA at L-U-V-M-O-U-R-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. I look forward to your insights and to learning from you. Those insights selected will receive a copy of the award-winning book so valuable for parents and educators. Grow Together, Parenting as a Path to Well-Being, Wisdom, and Joy by Dr. Josette Lovemore. Yes, we have the same last name, and we are married, and we have been working together in holistic education for more than 30 years. But that's not the reason I offer this book. Check out her many accolades and the book reviews on our website, lovemoreconsulting.com. So we're, we're, you and I, we've both been around the block many, many, many times. And one of the uh, essence principles of spirituality that we're both aware of is the idea of letting go and the idea of not uh, holding on to the past, and yet given the extensive experience we've each had in our personal lives, in our professional lives, and in our commitment to meaning in education, letting go is not that easy a process, is it? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I was younger, I would say, I just want to get to the part of life where the sailing is smooth, you know, smooth. Doesn't this ride get easier as you get older? And I think that awareness increases, as awareness increases over time, uh, these issues, there is no smooth riding. It's just dealing with it in a way that is uh, more congruent to well-being and I don't always accomplish that. I've been through a period of six years dealing with my wife's decline from Alzheimer's and I'm she, she passed away a few months ago and I'm still recovering from all of that um, inner stress that I couldn't release and I'm still trying to release. So the past is carried with you. I, it's don't you feel that? It's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Well, there's two aspects of yeah. what you said. One is I know that I came to look at the deeper aspects of consciousness, partly because I have an inclination, but also out of grief and suffering. And um, and then, but my entry was okay. I'm going to find this pl- place in consciousness, and it's going to solve my problems. <laughs> Smooth riding, right? Right. Right, Phil. And then. You, it starts to happen and you go, wait a minute, it's opening into more complexity, deeper questions, 
and more profound inner relationships to feelings and grief and trying to appreciate that in the larger context that you earlier spoke of, of great nature, um, universe, and so on. So I deeply relate to what you're saying. But you've had a wonderful uh, expression of creativity in the last couple of years as well. So how does the grief, creativity, context, how all that happens for you? So one of the things that happened as Marsha declined is I wasn't able to deal with it. And I had to, like, short-circuit my mind when it became, when thoughts came in that I knew would take me down the tunnel. And I, if I went in that tunnel, it would just get worse. So I began catching myself and looking at how did those thoughts originate? What was the conditioning behind that thought? And so over time, you know, I think I freed up a part of myself so that I don't go down that rabbit hole or as deep into the rabbit hole as I used to. And out of that emerged this immense amount of creativity, not only because I I was awakening to more of myself, but also I was trying to contextualize what this relationship with Marsha created over 20 years because it wasn't just husband and wife. It was co-creation of this learning environment and it was a love of both um, intellect, spirit, body, mind, and spirit. So um, in dealing with that, just all this creativity emerged. And now I'm beginning to see that, yes, a lot of it, was with Marshall, but a lot of it also I brought. And that's what I'm I'm trying to write about now. Would it be fair to say, and I'm exploring this in myself, that grief, participating in grief and the, I'm going to say the destructive aspects of universe without any uh, judgment around that, the change that's evident in universe, that participating in that without judgment, opens up a dimension of creativity and spirituality that erodes conditioning? Well, that's what I heard you say. It's true. It It is true. But in the middle of your talking, I flipped from the personal to the planetary, and and I'm trying the grief I felt last week with the floods and the hurricanes and the forest fires over Portland. That's a hard one. Well, I think that's it. I mean, I I walk around with a a feeling in my chest all the time that is, I can only identify as connecting to that suffering that's implicit in life. Explicit in life. (laughs) Both. Yeah. And and so I, yeah, so what it does to me is the education that you and I have both been involved in is more important than ever. And I try to, I'm not blocking it out, but I can't do anything about it mm-hmm. except what I'm doing. And and that's to hopefully raise awareness and through teacher education. I'm uh, I, I'm going to the Holistic Teaching and Learning Conference next this weekend in Ashland. 
and they asked me to, uh, to, to do a presentation. And one of the foci in my life has been on the way children understand death. And I feel strongly, and I want your opinion, is why I'm bringing this up, that, the, if, that there is a natural unfolding of a child's consciousness in relationship to death, and that is very much has to be included in this contextual understanding that you're asking us to participate in. And I feel it's terribly missed in an understanding of education. And I feel like if... In, in my experience with the people I've worked with, when that does, when people allow that death in the natural process, it doesn't, it, the grief is experienced in a different way. It's not experienced with cultural conditioning as much, but more in this kind of openness that you've been experiencing. It's kind of a taboo in our culture to even talk about it. And it's right. like the essence of living is dying. And so how do we Take it out of the box, you know? Kids come to school. I remember one time a child come to school and he was just tears rolling down. And his grandma died, you know? So he sat in a circle and talked about it, you know? And and the kids understand viscerally what it means without adults around. (laughs) It's the adults that create a, um, a closed membrane so that with their conditioning about death. Now, let's go back to the garden, too. I I mean, death really, for the three, four, five-year-old, can be experienced in the garden and brought to to a dialogue. How do you see it happening? Well, um, in the briefest terms, the uh, children below seven or eight have basically a magical approach. Um, I'm going to die and I'll see grandpa in heaven or wherever. I mean, whatever their parents have said. But will grandpa, will I still have this withered arm from cancer? So it's a body, my, it's a body-centered age. In other words, my body, the magical thing is my body is still going to go across. Around six or so, we start to become aware of my body's going to go. In other words, it's deaded. Not my body, but it's deaded. And the kids will poke it, they'll play with it, and you'll see kids at this age play, uh, I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm alive, I'm dead. And um, by the way, that's not gender specific. <laughs> and But it's not, and this is universal, it's so interesting to me, it's not until eight and a half or nine that I die. I die becomes the fact in my life and it switches perception entirely and so that's a really key moment what do we do right then how do we participate in that in a relational way with children without co-opting it and there's all sorts of things around this it's when children will go to sunday schools or go to a religious service there's all sorts of things we can notice around behaviorally as outcomes of this but fundamentally, I know I'm going to die. And parents and educators miss this because it's expressed in nightmares. It's expressed in, there's all sorts of, quote, regressive behaviors, which aren't regressive at all, but actually are signs to us that something's changing. Something's really deeply changing. And we need a different kind of connection 
to allow that. And it's here that Montessori and Pierce and many others have noticed the movement to nature. There's a gigantic movement more to nature at this point. And you'll see kids start the Save the Nature Club and Save the Elephants, and they'll be okay with predator and prey. They won't argue that. They'll be okay with it, even if they feel sorry for the zebra being eaten by the lion. So, And then we can trace that all the way up. So to me, there's giant implications in this for our field. Yeah, the... Um what comes to mind is the taboo. Most and, and and people just teachers don't want to cross that line because they're afraid they'll interfere with some religious training and get in trouble. And it's worse here in the U.S., as you know. And the taboos everywhere with the glorification of youth, the, the marketing. Nobody nobody wants anything to do with death. And yet here it is. Say more about that. Well, death is in life, you said. Oh, oh, I thought you, the marketing. Oh, say more about the marketing. Well, it's, you know, you have a youthful body, you have a slim body, all all those kinds of things. Um, Get rid of your wrinkles. Right. We don't see, (laughs) right. And we don't see any... uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, funeral homes advertising on TV, do we? <laughs> <laughs> right? Bring us your body, right? That's New Zealand, a, I did. It, really? Yeah. Well, there you go. That's really interesting. But it would be, it's crazy. It would be taboo. So if we start to notice how it unfolds in children, then we can at least begin to make it, yeah, that's right. It's, that body's not coming back. That's right. That's right. You will die. I think it's as important as it is for the ages you spoke of. It's um, for adolescents. My God, there's a huge amount of damage that's done during that year by not acknowledging that. Huge. And so we get the daredevil adolescent. We get the, the belief in... Um, you know, they'll just do wild things. Impen- imp- impervious. To- impervious, yeah. Part of that's natural. Uh, because I think adolescents, and well, maybe not as natural. Because, you know, if you look historically, they were involved in the hunt, they were involved in the society, and they didn't have to act out because life in itself was acting out. And 99% of them had a rites of passage, which drew them to an edge. The key part of a rite of passage is a liminal experience. So, okay, you want to look at the edge? Let's go look at it. Right. And now it's drugs or whatever. Yeah, Rachel Kessler. Did you know Rachel? Yeah, Rachel did all that great work on the Mysteries program. And her work was really conclusive. Motorcycle gangs, cigarettes, promiscuity, all those kinds of, all those behaviors are attempts to go to an edge to among populations that really have had no guidance and no opportunity, no mentorship to bring them there. So where do we go? <laughs> well, we go where we're going. I mean, you've done, you do incredible work and we just keep knocking on that door because... What else is there? I'm a big uh, supporter of Brian Swim's work. Um, 
you know, ever since I read his first book in 1986, The Universe is a Green Dragon and his collaboration with Thomas Berry on The Universe Story. And he put out a series of um, several video series, but in one of them he talks about creativity and how it always happens on the edge of an ecosystem. And I feel like we are on that edge of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And it can't happen if we were in the middle of it because there's too many restrictions to what we might accomplish or do or try. And eventually people will, this might become mainstream and it might not, but it'll be here when everything falls apart Mm -hmm. because it's, Root is right action and love. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is a production of Lovemore Consulting 2 LLC. Copyright Ba and Josette Lovemore 2018. Our sound engineer, Dimitri Young. Our webmaster, Nathan Young. And our all important media maven, Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at lovemoreconsulting.com slash podcasts. Bye and Josette Lovemore would also like to thank Self-Design Graduate Institute. We teach there, and at Self-Design, we nurture each learner's ability to explore inner and outer worlds and discover his or her own deep understanding and vision. Go to the SDGI website and see for yourself. That's www.selfdesigninstitute.org. This is Ba Lovemore, reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.